0: tonight we'll be reading from Romans chapter 9 verses 14 through 21 verse 14 what shall we then say is there injustice in God's part by no means for he says to Moses I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion so then it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy For scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Lauren. All right, well, we are privileged tonight to have a, a special guest, a, a new friend for probably most of us here this evening, but an old friend for some. Um, as we mentioned to you last week, we have the privilege tonight of having Pastor Tim Chaddick um, with us, and he'll be preaching a super simple text that you just heard the, the, the passage of uh, <laughs> from Romans 9, uh, and he'll tell, you, uh, he'll tell you how much of a privilege that is, I'm sure, here in just a moment. But um, uh, Tim is the pastor of Preaching at Reality Ventura in the uh, Los Angeles area in California. He is the founding pastor of Reality Church London and Reality LA. Tim's an author, he's written a couple of great books, uh, one called Better, The Other Truth About Lies, both projects that, that came ab- about just with lessons learned pastoring there at Reality. Uh, Tim is active in speaking at churches and conferences, helping leaders start and maintain new churches. In fact, Tim was gracious enough this afternoon to meet with myself. Uh, Trey and a couple of our pastoral residents to talk about preaching. Thank you for doing that, brother. That was super helpful. And uh, just want to mention he and his wife, Lindsay, live in Ventura uh, County with their three daughters, Lily, Phoebe, and Paige. We have a Paige, right? Paige. Yeah. And uh, we are so honored to have Tim here this evening. So would you make him feel welcome as he comes up to the stage? Tim, thanks for being here, brother. Thank you yeah. so much, Brad. Let me, let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we, um, we lift up uh, this brother to you and pray, Lord, that you would use him tonight to help us see you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.
2: Amen. Uh, when Brad did mention the opportunity of, of joining you, then he mentioned the, the text, which is one of the most notoriously difficult passages in Romans. I was like, huh. It could be interpreted as a punt. But I could also completely bomb, this sermon could be trash, but next week I'll be in California. So Brad, the joke is on you. I was asked, this is my first time ever in Oklahoma. I was asked if I was experiencing any culture shock, to which I said only the gas prices. Because I paid $6 a gallon back in California. So if you were looking for a reason to be grateful tonight, you're welcome. I do know that Californians have a reputation for being superficial, but what people don't know is that we are deeply superficial. (laughs) And that is why we need to pray tonight as we dive into God's Word. So let's pray once more and let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us that God would enable me to bless and to serve you regardless of where you're at, where you're coming from. Let's pray together. Maybe it's even your first time in church, or first time in a long time. Let's pray right now, and let's invite God to speak to us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that every person in this room matters to you. You are aware of, and you are concerned with, all that concerns us. You know what we're going through, you know what's stressing us out, you know what's giving us joy. Tonight, as we open your word, would you open our hearts, and would you speak to us, speak into our lives? By your word, would you shape and reshape how we think about you, ourselves, and others, particularly from this text? And I ask for your spirit's help. To seek to serve these men and women. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, call it confirmation bias, assimilation, or self-justification. Some simply call it your inner lawyer. Every one of you has one. It's a phrase that describes this remarkable ability that we have to defend ourselves at any cost even if all the facts point to our guilt. Sound familiar? New York best-selling author, um, New York Times, Jonathan Haidt was finishing his workday of writing on moral psychology. How people tend to fabricate reasons that justify their behavior, when he came home to his wife, who gently but firmly told him not to leave out the dirty dishes, as he had a habit of doing. The problem was that before she had even finished her sentence, his inner lawyer was already hard at work. He says, Quote, even before I knew why she was criticizing me, I knew I disagreed with her. The instant I knew the content of her criticism, the dirty dishes, my inner lawyer went to work searching for an excuse. I then lied so quickly and convincingly that my wife and I both believed me. Now, friends, if we are honest, we've all had this experience. Though my inner lawyer has been on retainers since I was born, I do remember the day my teenage friend accused me back when I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area, which I like to describe as being defined by science and crystals. That's all you need to know about San Francisco Bay Area, raised on granola. One of my teenage friends there in my angsty years in high school, She accused me of being conceited. No, I'm not, I shouted. And later that night, I remember looking for a dictionary because I actually had no idea what the word meant. It means arrogant, by the way, just in case you were wondering. (laughs) I was defending myself, even though all the facts were against me. I'm sure you've had the experience as well. And if you don't think you have, if you're married, ask your spouse they will tell you otherwise I mention that because few people understand human nature and the reality of the inner lawyer like Paul the Apostle the author of the letter to the Roman Church and his letter to the Romans is primarily about how God creates a new humanity But the beginning of this letter has reminded us why we need to become new in the first place. Our world is broken because of this problem of sin. And we are broken. All of us. We're all on the same level playing field. And in this letter so far, he's made clear that the Gentiles, those people who are not Jewish, they are guilty. But also, shockingly, surprisingly, Even the Jewish people, the people from whom the commandments of God came, they too were guilty. Wait a minute, some people might have said. The Jews are guilty as well? It's not hard to imagine the reaction of some of Paul's Jewish readers, the people who were born and raised with the the holy scriptures in their homes. And it raises the question about God. how does God judge? Is he just in his judgment? It raises questions about the people of Israel, which he's addressing here in chapter 9. But it also raises questions about us. And here in chapter 9, at this point in his letter, he anticipates objections. He anticipates the pushback that he might get from the inner lawyer when he speaks about God's judgment when he speaks about how God saves and whenever Paul answers these objections he seems to be answering both legitimate and honest questions that we might ask when we think about God's nature but he also anticipates the fact that however brilliant we might be even our own questioning is not free from the effects of sin because if we're honest tonight and we should be some of us we use our ability to argue at times simply to protect our own ego or to at least get us out of the hot seat even if we belong there even if we did in fact leave out the dirty dishes For some context, Paul has just made the point that God's choice is actually not controlled or governed by influences beyond himself. Brad talked about this last week as you walked through the beginning of Romans chapter 9. But having talked about this, Paul now anticipates this inner lawyer objecting. Now, we're about to dive into some pretty deep theological concepts if I can use that phrase but I want to remind us that they have a very practical purpose to put it simply it's this if there is fault with God then I don't need to be accountable to him that's how practical it gets. If there's a fault with God, if there's something wrong with His justice or how He runs and rules over the world, then. I don't need to be accountable to him. And it changes the way you engage with God. It changes the way you engage with the Bible. It changes the way in which you engage with one another, your spouse, your children, your family, your friends. So though these are particularly difficult concepts here in Romans chapter 9, even for me to wrap my head around, they are also surprisingly practical. It has everything to do with our attitude as he addresses the questions of the inner lawyer and our inner lawyer is always looking to get us out of guilt if there's fault with God I don't need to be accountable to him but if there is no fault with God then you and I we are accountable to him but I would like to suggest that admitting this tonight Is a good thing for it is in admitting our guilt that we are prepared to understand and receive his grace so the objections the debate that that Paul brings up you might say well I'm new to this what debate what is the argument what is the inner lawyer arguing about well the debate surrounds and the difficulty of this passage surrounds God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And let me say this, the Bible indeed teaches these two truths. God is sovereign. He is not governed by influences beyond himself. He is sovereign, he rules and he reigns. The Bible also teaches at the same time that you and I are responsible. That the choices that you and I make are genuine and they are real. Some people call this the freedom of the human will. However, I hesitate to use the term freedom of the will because our wills, our choices, are influenced by all kinds of factors our circumstances, our nature, our thoughts, our experiences. So are we really free in our choosing? But nonetheless, we are responsible. We make choices that are real. So I prefer the term responsibility. Paul has just laid out in the beginning of this chapter that God elects by grace. That's the phrase that Paul the Apostle uses to describe God's choice in saving people. God is sovereign in his election. But Paul also teaches that man is responsible. The choices matter. Man is responsible to, by their choice, to believe and trust in God to save them. So the result is we see these two truths side by side in Scripture. God is sovereign, man is responsible. And tonight, I am not going to attempt to resolve this tension for you. I'm actually going to call you to live in the tension. As I was thinking about this this week, I was reminded there was an old comic strip in the newspaper. Remember those? Artifacts from a bygone era, the Sunday morning comics. But there was an imaginary editor leaning over Charles Dickens, saying, well, Mr. Dickens, it was either the best of times or it was the worst of times, but it can't be both. Using two of the most famous phrases ever uttered in the English language. (laughs) But we all know from experience, two things can be true at the same time. It was the best, it was the worst. Many parents would describe that as their experience of parenting. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. (laughs) I never slept, but I love my children. I had a hard time eating, but I'm so glad they're growing up. I might add that my oldest daughter just turned 18 and graduated high school. Yeah, you can whoop for that, right? I'm like, we made it! And any one of you who has a child over 18 are like, oh, you're not done yet. But I'm just going to bask in this moment. Two things can be true at once. God is sovereign, and man is responsible. These truths live side by side. How these two truths are intermingled together has been the source of debate for hundreds and hundreds of years, resulting in different theological camps and positions being taken. But let me just say this tonight, before we get into our text for a few moments. The attempts to reconcile these two truths often results In the watering down of one truth in favor of another so in the camp that tends to maximize man's responsibility and diminish God's sovereignty in that camp God is a mere spectator who is completely bound by human activity that's one error that's one extreme But the other view that seeks to elevate God's sovereignty and almost dismiss man's responsibility, in that view, God comes off as some kind of a cold dictator. We're all just robots, it might be said. But anyone who wants to remain faithful to the Bible, you must affirm these two truths together. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. I don't know what the call and response culture is here, but I'm just going to ask you to repeat that right now out loud. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. If you don't remember anything else tonight, remember that those two are joined together. J.I. Packer, who was a great... uh, a balanced Brit, he was an Anglican evangelical. He wrote a book on evangelism and the sovereignty of God, and in it he says this An antinomy, use that word in a sentence this week, exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. It is not a figure of speech, but an observed relation between two statements of fact. It is not deliberately manufactured. It is forced on us by the facts themselves. It is unavoidable and it is insoluble. We do not invent it. We cannot explain it. Nor is there any way to get rid of it save by falsifying the very facts that led us to it. Think of the two principles as not rival alternatives, but in some way that you do not grasp, complementary to one another. Now, that's a big paragraph to basically say what Charles Spurgeon once said when he was the prince of preachers south of the river in London in the 1800s and somebody said, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty with man's responsibility? And he he simply replied, I do not make it my business to reconcile friends. They're already together. Light, for example, is both waves and particles, and we don't understand how it can be so at the same time. But they are both true. We see these truths all throughout Scripture, even in verses that we're so familiar with. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The key phrase there, whoever believes in him. And yet, in the same gospel account, Jesus will say, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's a tension. And Paul himself is content to live with the tension, and we would do well to do the same. And it produces in us humility and responsibility. So that's the debate. How can these things be reconciled? Paul says, I'm not going to reconcile friends. God is sovereign in his choice and at the same time we are called to make choices that are real and genuine. So Paul has stated without apology that God is sovereign. And while this does not in any way mitigate human responsibility, it does not make God totally contingent upon human will. So all that to set us up for three, hopefully, simple points. Paul's purpose in this passage of Romans 9 is not to give an extensive answer to how God's sovereignty and human responsibility function together, but to answer some objections from the inner lawyer. So I'm just going to highlight three questions that our inner lawyer might have, with two responses. And the first objection is this. Number one, if God is sovereign in saving, doesn't that make him unjust? See, Paul anticipates this, this inner lawyer, and that's why if you have your Bibles open, verse 14, it says, what shall we save then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. See, notice what Paul's doing. He's saying, hey, I know in light of what I just said that God is sovereign in his election, in his saving, and I know what the inner lawyer thinks. You think, wait a minute. I don't know if I'm going to worship this God and read the Bible and do what he says and all this church stuff if God's unjust. And so he anticipates that objection of the inner lawyer, lawyer saying, wait a minute, I don't know about this. Hang on but he has two answers to this his first answer is simply no reason any saving action that God does is all mercy and compassion not justice and he explains this in verses 15 and 16 in verse 15 he quotes a famous passage from the book of Exodus For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Exodus 33, 19. You're like, great. What does that mean? Well, the context is this. In the narrative of the book of Exodus, the people of Israel have been brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, to serve God and they have made a covenant, a binding agreement with God. But shortly thereafter, the people of Israel, they made idols and they worshiped them. They brought themselves under God's judgment. God leaves them alone for like five minutes and you're like, we're free, we're going to make idols. And He's like, really? It's my translation of the Bible. And then God announces that their punishment is due. They deserve destruction. And he would have been right in judging the people of Israel. But it is in that very moment that God wants to demonstrate a lesson about his sovereignty. And so he speaks something spectacular to Moses, the leader of Israel. And he does so by saying, I will show compassion and mercy on those who deserve otherwise. Meaning, listen, no one has a claim on God to do anything for them except justice. But God says, I want to show my character that I am merciful. And compassionate. See, think about the term mercy for a moment. Mercy implies guilt. And if you want to prove this, tonight when you go to the store, walk up to a stranger and just say, I choose to show you mercy. And I guarantee you that you will not be greeted in a friendly way. <laughs> or try just going to your spouse tonight later, saying, Hi, honey, church, that was so good. God is sovereign, man is responsible, right? We remember it together. But honey, I just wanted to say, I've decided to show you mercy. Your spouse will be like, excuse me? You want to show me mercy? Why would they be offended? Or imagine this Christmas, you go out, instead of getting a a, a gift, you just write a little note that says, like, Merry Christmas. Your gift this year is I'm going to show you mercy. It's like the gift you didn't know you needed, you know. You unwrap that little present and you open it up and your spouse is like, this is for you. It's like, mercy. You're offended. Why? Because mercy implies guilt. When someone says, I want to show you mercy, it implies that you've done something wrong. To put it simply, mercy is not for innocent people. Mercy is for guilty people. If you and I, if we want justice then that would include eternal condemnation for everyone. Now pause for a moment and think about how practical this is. Because if you're anything like me, you've had those moments, wherever you're at in your relationship with God, even if you're not yet a Christian and you're considering whether or not you would trust God, or maybe you've been a Christian for decades, but right now in this season of life, you Feel that you've been dealt an unjust hand, and so you come to church and you're like, God, I don't like the hand that you've dealt me. I've got a problem with you. You did not come through for me. I remember in my early years of pastoring at Los Angeles, which was um, wonderful and turbulent. I suppose are two terms that just come to mind with like a largely, you know, young, single, exciting church. People in LA like to express their opinions freely. Um, So my inbox on Sundays would be full before the end of the day, and then I moved to England, and I never got emails when I preached Difference in culture There was this one particular young man He used to reach out to me every week and his complaint was this God didn't come through for me What did he mean by that well he had moved from Minnesota to LA because he believed that God's blessing meant that he would get the acting career because that's what everyone does in LA. (laughs) And he didn't get it. I'm mad at God. He wanted the girl that he could just woo and then marry within a matter of six months. She didn't come. God didn't come through for me. He wanted to be financially prosperous in LA, but how can that be when you pay three grand a month for a studio? well, you move to Tulsa. That's what you do. (laughs) But because he couldn't afford it, God hasn't come through for me. And I'm like, hang on. One day, I'm like, where did you get this idea? Like, it sounds as if God is the one on trial, and you're the judge. And he's like, well, that's right. And I was like, okay, I think you may have gotten the wrong idea when you read the Bible. (laughs) there are many times where our attitude towards God is God I don't think that you've handled things rightly I don't like your work here and as a result I think I'm owed something I'm a taxpayer with rights but what Paul is saying so clearly in the midst of this big theological concept is hang on you need to remember this any saving action is a result of what God's mercy and his compassion not his justice so the basis for God dealing with you and I with sinners is mercy so he's saying that question of the inner lawyer is God unjust he's like it's just a misconceived question if you want justice then you get eternal condemnation And then he underlines what he said earlier in verse 16. So then, salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has what? Justice? No. Mercy. Paul's reminding us that we are saved by grace, which, by the way, is the hook of the book. (laughs) We are saved by grace, is what Romans tells us. But what about when he judges? See, the inner layer's like, nah, okay, I concede that point. But then what about, okay, that's when he saves, okay, got it, mercy. But what about when he judges then? How about that? Well, Paul's answer in verse 17 and 18, any judging action is just and deserved. And in the end, it's actually used for good. He says in verse 17, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. The last part of that sentence should come with a match because it's lit many debate. We'll get there in a moment. Paul wants to show us That even God's judging actions are totally just and they actually serve an ultimate good purpose. Which, by the way, if you're following along in this series, is a very important point because it connects to something that Brad's going to talk about when he cleans up this sermon later in a few weeks. A demonstration of God's power, the inclusion of the Gentiles, he's going to get there in a moment. But here in the context of Romans 9, here's... An interesting parallel between the Pharaoh of the book of Exodus and the Jews who might have objected here when they read Romans chapter 9. Many of whom had hardened their hearts because they heard God saved Gentiles. The story is important with Pharaoh. Pharaoh, as most people would know, was one of the most powerful rulers on earth, enslaving millions of Jews. And what happens in Pharaoh's heart appears to be the center of the drama in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh, his hardened heart, that is that he did not listen to God, it actually brings about the deliverance of the Israelites from slavery. God maintains his sovereignty. God maintains his sovereignty. Pharaoh hardened his heart. But we're also told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What do we do with that? What do we do with that phrase? How can God Harden someone. And is that not unjust? That's where the debate lies. I read a verse like that, and I'm like, wait, God hardens people's hearts? Let's think about this for a moment. Some people, to get out of this tricky verse, would seek to point out that in the Exodus narrative, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and God simply responded to Pharaoh by then hardening his heart. That doesn't really make much sense. It also goes against what Paul has just said about God. God is sovereign. But the order of the text is actually mixed together. Pharaoh hardened his heart. That means he's responsible. At the same time, God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. God's sovereignty doesn't go on vacation. That's the big idea. So the question is, did God harden Pharaoh's heart and if so how well to the question did God harden Pharaoh's heart the answer is yes but how is perhaps a more important question especially as it pertains to God's justice now here's a misconception did God force Pharaoh to do something wrong and then blame him for it no That would be like a parent, you know, like pushing them at the dinner table so that the child spills their milk and then punishing them with a timeout for spilling the milk. I use that illustration because that is sadly how some people view God. Oh, God is sovereign. He's like, he bumps the kid. Oh, oops, you spilled the milk. You're guilty. And they have this idea of God as if he's he's some kind of cruel dictator. But I just want to say very clearly, that is not the portrait that the Bible paints for us regarding God's character. And that is not the way to understand this phrase, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God did not force Pharaoh to do something and then punish him for it. Well, then you might ask, how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And the answer is god hardened pharaoh's heart with mercy god hardened pharaoh's heart by showing him mercy and patience if you read the exodus narrative you'll learn very quickly that god sent moses to pharaoh again and again to plead with pharaoh to let the people of israel go but it was as god was showing mercy that that mercy ended up resulting in a hardness of pharaoh's heart we must not think for a moment that god hardened a kind-hearted pharaoh the book of exodus doesn't begin with pharaoh he was a nice guy He's like, what? I enslaved the Israelite? Oh my goodness, I'm I'm so sorry. Let's rectify that at once. That's, That's not it. God hardened his heart by showing him mercy. Pharaoh deserved to be given over to judgment, and God, Paul says here, retains his right to condemn him. Hardening signifies The encounter of a rebellious human heart to the Word of God. It's just like when you know you're guilty about something, but maybe your spouse or your friend or your sibling comes up and they continue to offer you mercy. Like, hey, I'm giving you another chance. And you're like, what? No. It happens with my children all the time. The more they extend mercy, like, hey, I I, want to reconcile. Like, no, I don't want to reconcile with you. And then they offer reconciliation again and they get even more angry. Have you ever noticed that? Be honest. That's what's happening with Pharaoh. God did not need to send Moses, but he did. He showed him mercy. He showed him patience. That's how he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so we must remember that God's hardening activity, as described here in Romans 9, is directed towards those who are already rebelling against his rule. To put it another way, God does not turn neutral people into sinners. God is just in mercy, and he is just in judgment. But that raises a second question from the inner lawyer. Wait a minute. Okay, if God is sovereign and saving, then how can we be blamed? How can we be held responsible? Well, in verse 19, he anticipates the inner lawyer again. You will say to me then, I love Paul. He's so drama. I relate in so many ways. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? What are you going to do with that little nugget, Paul? In other words, the objection is this. If God is sovereign, who can resist him? And if no one can resist him, what right does he have to judge us? How can we be blamed? Well, his answer is twofold. First of all, Paul reminds us that, hey, we are created by God and accountable to God. Verse 20, he says, but I just want to address the attitude of the heart. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? The clay and the potter. The basic idea is that he is God and we are not. This analogy emphasizes the the distance between us and God. Since we are not God, we are not in a position to say that we know better and that we could do better. And yet, how often do we find that very attitude in our own hearts? I sometimes respond to God as if I knew all the details. I'm like, God, for the year 2022, is that... I didn't even remember. What year is it? 2022, right? Yeah. I'm like, Lord, I had a script. I sent it to you via PDF, and you didn't follow my script. What's the deal? Like, I think I have a pretty good plan for my life, and I'm a little upset that you haven't followed it. So I think you kind of owe me an apology. Isn't that often the attitude of our hearts? And Paul's like, who are you, Tim? To personalize it. You can fill in your name in the blank. Like, who are you, oh man? Do you, like, do you have all the knowledge? Were you there when God created the earth? Were you there when, when God created the, the cosmos, the universe, reigned over all of history? Were you there? No, you weren't. So bear in mind that this is the attitude of the creature assuming to be judge over the creator. Now don't misunderstand me, it is normal and right to ask honest questions. It's normal to want answers like, man, this is a confusing passage. I need to know about this. Totally fine. We welcome that in our churches. But there's a difference between asking a question with an open hand or asking it with a closed fist. Someone coming to God or coming to this church saying like, hey, I've got some questions and I'd love to wrestle with them together. I'm sure everyone in this church would be like, yeah. But if you come and you're like, fists up, like, what about God, huh? God, what about that, huh? What's your answer, oh God? That's the inner lawyer saying, hey. Your inner lawyer rushes up like, hey, I've got this, you know, suit and tie, briefcase. Like, you just sit down. I'm going to defend you to the death. And so Paul answers this objection like, hey, just remember, you are creation, not creator. Ask honest questions, but do it with an open hand, not a closed fist. But the second way he answers is this, ultimately sinners are blamed because all are guilty of sin. It's actually very simple. Human responsibility is never denied, and there's also no exception to human guilt. Or as I like to say, there's no spiritual Switzerland. You can't be like, ah, oh, sorry, neutral doesn't work based on this Paul affirms God's right and that he is fair in his judgment verse 21 he goes on has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use that is one for a positive role and other is a cautionary tale see listen for those who reject God and refuse his mercy and Are hardened as a result God will give them exactly what they want which is no God which is what hell is but ultimately he will give them over to what they want but for his purpose Paul will get into that later on in Romans 9 but the question might be well if I'm so utterly sinful that I can't choose God apart from grace how can God hold me accountable See, this is an important point. Jesus speaks of this inability to choose as a result of our own loves. Jesus said, we loved darkness more than light. And we are held accountable accordingly. Paul has stated early in this letter, we exchange the truth For the lie, and we worshiped and served creation rather than creator. Notice the theme of choice even in the book of Acts, which records for us the earliest history of the church. When Peter, or excuse me, Stephen is preaching his message to his Jewish hearers who refuse the gospel. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Speaking of Jesus. See, God showed mercy by sending the prophets, but people hardened their hearts by refusing his mercy. Listen, friends, if it were not for the grace of God, we would all be like Pharaoh, and our heart would be hardened in response to the love and the mercy that he shows us. As it's been said, the same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. We see it all around us. Someone who hates you hates you even more when you show them kindness. The cause of the hard heart is actually persistent personal sin. So the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin and point us to Jesus. Now, some would fear that if God sovereignly calls people, then there will be those who want mercy from God, but they'll be denied. Fair question. You're like, wait a minute, if God is sovereign, then the people who want mercy, they won't get it? No. Jesus, in the book of John, chapter 6, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's anyone. That's anyone anyone who comes to Jesus and says, show me mercy, God's not going to be like, nope. It'll never happen. J.I. Packer, once again, he says, the Bible never says that a sinner misses heaven because they are not elect, but that they would not repent and believe. And so Paul answers this objection. Whatever you believe about election, God does genuinely offer Jesus Mercy, forgiveness, and hope to the world, the promise of justification and the forgiveness of sins. And that leads to the last point. What does election say about God? What does all this say about God? The final question he anticipates is the question about God's character. What does it all say about him? Well, on the one hand, in wrath, his judgment demonstrates the seriousness Of evil and sin and so he says there what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction see when God shows wrath and talks about judgment it preserves his justice the doctrine of hell teaches us that there is a place of perfect justice for those who reject Mercy if God did not judge if he did not have wrath he would not be a god worth worshiping because he would be an unjust god but we see his patience and bearing with sinful humanity he could have wiped out everyone on the face of the earth but in mercy he does not his patience of these things serve as the backdrop for his wonderful grace and that's the second answer in mercy he shows his great love towards undeserving sinners. That's you and I. So he says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. For those who receive mercy, we become showcases for his glory. So what does this mean for us? and since we're all guilty of sin how is it possible for God to turn guilty sinners into glorious showcases how is that even possible well the only one who is able to judge your case rightly is God and he has rightly exposed that all of us are in sin all of us have turned away all of us have rebelled we are guilty And deserve his righteous judgment. But that's not the only reason that Paul the Apostle is writing the letter to the Romans and to us. He's also writing because there is good news. In a radical plot twist, the only one worthy of judging you has willingly taken up the role of defending you. That's the plot twist. God, our righteous judge, has sent his son Jesus to live on our behalf, die the death that we all deserve because of sin. And Jesus rose again to be our advocate. That is, Jesus stands in our place to bear the penalty that our sin deserves so that we can get the righteousness that his perfection deserves. Deserves. That's what leads us to being accepted by God. That's the good news of Jesus. So how do we respond tonight? Well, you and I, we need to recognize and fire our inner lawyer. Part of our fallen nature is that we have this uncanny ability to defend ourselves at any cost, even at the expense of truth but Paul says it is God who is righteous not ourselves we need to humble ourselves before God and tonight even just say God if in any way I've come to you as if you're the one on trial not me I turn from that I repent but there's more you need to replace your inner lawyer with Jesus he is our advocate but he doesn't pretend that we aren't guilty nor does he present to the court our own track record to justify us no he says this person is guilty as charged but I make the payment on their behalf so that they can go free and that is why we celebrate the cross of Jesus Christ if it's only justice that you and I want hell is the place but if it is mercy we come to the cross see friends in Forgiving sinners, God does not lower his standard, he lowers himself in order to lift us up. So that the Apostle John would say this, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Friends, do you know what this means? It means tonight we have the freedom to be honest. We have the freedom to confess our sins, to take responsibility for our faults and our sins because we have the assurance of forgiveness by grace. The gospel frees us. So tonight, are you in a pattern of constantly defending yourself before God or accusing God or trying to justify yourself before your spouse or your friends, spinning the truth, denying things, giving half-truths. My question tonight is, in what area do you you need to fire your inner lawyer and just receive Jesus as your advocate? Repent and rest in Jesus, the righteous judge who showed us mercy and grace. Your inner lawyer tries to repress the truth, but Jesus reveals the truth your inner lawyer tries to reduce your guilt but Jesus removes your guilt your inner lawyer is always working to earn your acceptance but Jesus has already worked to offer you acceptance your inner lawyer relies on your track record to make you righteous but Jesus provides his track record to make you righteous and your inner lawyer can never give you peace but jesus always gives you peace so tonight you can know the freedom of being totally honest about your guilt before god and yet totally free because you are accepted by god through jesus and by grace and that is where we find ourselves amen